Happy New Year to you. It's awesome to be back uh, together in 2018. I'm really excited about 2018. Um, we're going to begin uh, today a new uh, teaching series that's going to take us right up until Easter time. And I think it's a really fitting thing to walk through because what we're walking through as a church community is uh, one of the most famous teaching sessions of Jesus that he gives to his closest disciples around a table in the upper room right before he's betrayed and right before he goes to a cross and right before he rises from the dead. So it's a, it's a really fitting series to, to walk through leading up to that Easter time. And, and I'll just be really honest with you, I've been really anxious uh, to teach through this section of scripture for a few years. And uh, just never really, for some reason, just never felt peace that the time was right. And I feel very strongly that this is the right time uh, that we need to be walking through this as a faith community. And so I do, I really hope that you will join in uh, these next few months and just drink deeply, really, from these, these words of Jesus and, and even these actions of Jesus that we see. And so um, if you have a Bible, uh, please go ahead and grab it. You want that. And let's open those up to John chapter 13. If you're using your phone, anything else, it's great. John chapter 13, uh, we're in verses 1 through 17 this morning, and if you snagged one of the Bibles on your way in, uh, you can find that on page 585. It looks like if you need a Bible, you can slip a hand up, there's no embarrassment with that, and someone will hand you a Bible. So page 585 if you're using one of those. Um, but I want to ask you, uh, as we dive into John 13 this morning, uh, I want to ask you this, if, if someone were to ask you, what is it about Christianity that makes it so unique or even compelling? How, how would you answer that person if someone were to ask you that? What is it? I mean, so, so as you walk on Oregon State's campus this week or if you are at work and you're interacting with a coworker or uh, you're, you're in a home gathering with friends or family this week, or you're interacting with a neighbor on your street, or in your apartment complex, or your dorm, and if one of those people were to ask you, if your faith comes up and they were to ask you, what is it that makes Christianity unique or, or compelling? I mean, how would you answer that person? I mean, I, I think uh, that question could be answered, honestly, in countless ways, really can. Um, I, I immediately think maybe of the truth of the Trinity, that we believe the Bible teaches that God is a Trinitarian God, that he is one God and, and three persons, equal in power and glory with each other. I would, I would maybe think of the incarnation, what we just celebrated at the Advent time, that just a month ago at Christmas, you know, that God actually took on flesh and he became a man and pursued us right here on this earth. Or I would think definitely about, you know, the gospel of God's grace, you know that God has done everything for you this morning in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to reconcile you to himself fully and finally. Like, he's done all the work for you. Salvation is by grace. We could think of all these things that make Christianity very unique and compelling, but I think there is another truth that we look at this morning if we look closely in John chapter 13 that is explicitly seen in our passage when we look closely at it. We see something that makes Christianity utterly unique, honestly, to anything else that you will find in this world. Any other belief system, any other person that you will find in this entire world, there's something so unique about Christianity, there's something so unique about Christ. And so if you look on the pack of your paper branch notes, you kind of see the roadmap here of where we're going in, in discovering this. We see this jaw-dropping example of Jesus. You see that in verses 1 through 5 of this text. You see... 
his example, what it really actually means, what he's really getting at, what he's pointing to in this jaw-dropping example. And finally, uh, we also see this change, the change that his example will bring inevitably to your life if you behold it, if you believe him. So first, I want us to look at this jaw-dropping example of Jesus starting in verse 1. So if you would, just read with me here in John chapter 13, starting in verse 1, for this jaw-dropping example of Jesus. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Uh, well, would you, would you look at that? Would you look at this? Jesus was washing feet well before this was like a popular thing to do in modern-day Christian weddings, okay? So whoever thought this was uh, just a, you know, a revolutionary act to do in a wedding ceremony, Jesus was doing it well before anybody else. He set the standard here of washing feet, okay? And so here, though, I just want this scene, I guess, to sink in a little bit visually. Because most of us, when we think of what's happening here, they're in the upper room. This is the upper room discourse, okay? This is Passover. Jesus is with his closest disciples, the 12, okay? And most of us, when we picture this scene, we, we see this. This will be a photo here on the screen. We, we, we imagine this, right? This is Leonardo da Vinci's upper room, famous uh, Passover supper here in the upper room, right? You can find this in Milan, okay? Most of us, we, we imagine this scene, right? You've seen this before? If not, I, I don't know where you've been, right? This is so famous, okay? One of the most famous paintings. Everyone can recognize this painting, okay? Most of us imagine this, but this is such a Western view uh, of this painting, right? Uh, or of this scene, because they're all, what, in chairs. They're all on one side of the table. They're all looking out. Right? I'm sure Leonardo wasn't trying to capture you know, the essence of exactly what was happening, but this is what we imagine, but this is not at all what really would have, what this would have looked like. And so I, I, I searched really wide and far to try to find a photo for you guys or a painting of what this might look like, and this is the best I could find, okay? I'm sorry, this is terrible, okay? Uh, this is not a Da Vinci, that's for sure. I didn't have time to paint you something this morning. But you get the idea, because this is actually what everyone would have been doing around this table. They all would have been reclining, probably on their left arm, with their feet sticking out, eating with their right hand. So this is the scene, okay? Their feet were sticking out away from themselves because they were filthy, they were dirty. They'd been walking around all day in, in dust and dirt and filth with open-toed sandals. It was, it was a nasty it was a nasty thing, and so you kept your feet furthest from the table. And so you would put your feet out as well so that somebody would come by and wash your feet, and your feet were sticking out so that you could actually ignore them. Because the people that would come around and wash your feet were people you actually probably wanted to ignore. Because the person who would wash your feet was, was always a person who was a non-Jewish slave. 
It was somebody who was the lowest in all of society. It was somebody who was the outcast, somebody who nobody wanted to be. It was the job nobody wanted to have. It was a disgraceful job. It was a menial task. And it's really hard for us to wrap our minds around that. I know we think feet are gross. And so touching someone's feet and washing them is just weird and awkward. And so that's why that's difficult for us. That's why this feels like disgusting. But that's not why. This was a a social issue. This was an outcast sort of issue. It's hard for us to understand this. I, I read one example this week, a historical example. There was this Rabbi Ishmael who came back from a synagogue one day, and his mother, his own mother, wanted to wash his feet, but he refused. He wouldn't even let his own mom wash his feet because he said it was too demeaning. And do you want to know what his mom did? She went to the rabbinic court and fought him on it. Like, seriously, this mother fought her son in the rabbinic court because she believed she should be able to wash his feet because it was a sign of honor, okay? I mean, could you imagine taking your own son to court over the fact that, that, that uh, he wouldn't let you wash his feet, right? That seems ridiculous to us, but that, that kind of gives you an idea of how disgraceful this act was. It's really hard to imagine, honestly, an equivalent in our day and age, just, just trying to think of a job that, like, nobody ever wanted to do. And honestly, the best job I can think of is, is the job of, of cleaning a bathroom or, or washing toilets or something. I mean, I remember working at a summer camp uh, during my years in college. I worked in a summer camp in Big Bear, California for a few summers. And every week as the campers would go home before we got off, you know, before we got to experience our off day for the week, right, the campers would go. We had to clean up the camp. And so it was always this sort of battle or this passive-aggressive fight, you know, over what tasks all of us staffers would be divvied up with. You know, some of us, we wanted to clean up the ropes course or the rec shed or vacuum or something, but there was always the group that no one wanted to be in that had to clean the bathrooms, you know, because you had to go in, you had to clean teenage boys' and girls' toilets and showers and clean out the girls' treasure boxes, which is what we called them, all right? It was the lowest job that nobody wanted, and it was actually a really good spiritual test for a lot of us, because we all waited to see who was going to be the most humble and spiritual that week, and if no one volunteered, someone would get stuck with it, and so it was just this passive-aggressive fight, but I really, I want you to try this morning to understand the humiliation of this act, just try to understand it. I mean, this was a job that nobody wanted, okay? While the disciples sit frozen and, and fearful, No doubt, just wondering who's going to be the one to get up and assume this highly unpleasant task of washing everyone's feet. What happens? Jesus gets up, he girds himself with a towel, and he proceeds to do what only household servants were expected to do. Jesus doesn't wait for them to serve, he takes the initiative to serve them. It's this image of Jesus removing his outer clothing and wrapping a towel around his waist and proceeding to wash his disciples' feet, guys, it's so stunning. I mean, Jesus here adopts the stance of a non-Jewish slave. He adopts the stance of a position that's looked down upon by Jews and Gentiles, just everybody. Nobody wanted this position. And there were a lot of other rabbis in this day and age who would talk about the virtue of humility, but they always talked about that with limitations to it. And here, Jesus, on the other end, he knows no boundaries to his humility. He doesn't have any. 
I suggest to you this is one of the most shocking scenes in all the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John. And it is one of the most distinctive truths of Christianity. It's what makes Christianity so compelling. Because in every other religion or sect or philosophical movement, the leader, guys, he's always served by his followers. The the leader is, is built by their followers, maybe like a huge mansion or something. I mean, the, the, the followers give the leader all their money. They wait upon their leader hand and foot. They exist to make their own leader comfortable. They exist to supply their leader with whatever he or she may need. They exist to provide their leader with wealth and safety and whatever luxuries are needed. In every other religion, the followers serve, the followers wait upon, they give their possessions to their leader, but not in Christianity. Jesus did not come to be served by others, but to serve them. Jesus does not lead by being served. Jesus leads by serving. And my friends, this stands out. This makes Christianity so unique and utterly compelling. I mean, I mean just look at the way this is articulated to us. Look in verse 3. Jesus, in verse 3, we are told, he's very aware that he is about to die and be raised and, and return to his heavenly father. He knows that he's about to depart to this wor- from this world. Right? We're also told that he's ac- acutely aware of where he came from. This glorious throne in heaven, he's acutely aware of where he's headed back to this glorious throne in heaven. He's very aware that all things are given into his hands, that he has all this power and authority, and yet Jesus, fully aware of who he is, where he's come from, where he's going, the kind of power and authority he has, how he is greater by far than anybody in this room, what does he do? He washes his disciples' feet, including feet of Judas. I mean, this humble act, guys, it is as unnecessary as it is stunning. It's jaw-dropping. I mean, there are moments, I think, in our lives where you see something or experience something, and it not only sticks with you, but it kind of changes you. You know, it forever ties itself to you. It kind of redefines things. You cling to it. You savor it. You remember it because it was so special. It was so unique. Uh, I remember as a kid growing up, uh, I I had an amazing family. I feel very, very privileged with the family I have. I love my family. I wouldn't trade my experience, my family for for anybody's. And, um, but growing up, my family, we didn't have a lot of money, okay? Uh, We weren't homeless. We weren't destitute, but we were definitely at like the poverty level, okay, growing up. And I remember always having these like super cheap cars, uh, all of these cars we had, my dad would like, you know, stumble upon them somehow or someone would give him a car and, and they had all these things wrong with them and they were really embarrassing. One made high-pitched squeaks and I'd always duck under the floorboards, you know, when we'd come to a stop. And I just, I was always embarrassed by our vehicles that we had. And so me and my sisters, we so badly wished that we had a much cooler car, you know, to ride around in. And one day my parents, I'm not even sure how, purchased a Pontiac Trans Am van. It was gold. It looked kind of like this. It's be on the screen, I believe, okay? It's kind of pixelated. I apologize, but you get the idea. This is pretty, pretty sweet, okay? I don't know why we loved these vans with those, like, weird noses to them, but we, these were cool. These had both, both sides of the van had opening and closing doors. This was, like, revolutionary for the van industry, okay? It had, like, so many cup holders, like a great stereo. These was, this was, like, the really cool van, and we got this van, and we were just like, wow, we have a really cool 
car. We, I remember epically, we drove this van from Montana all the way to the East Coast and back in like this two-week-long vacation. It was like the most memorable vacation we ever went on. I loved this van. It was a sweet van. But one day, not long after my parents' trip, you know, you know that they took us on, they came to us and they told us that God had clearly impressed upon them to give away this van for free to another family who was in need. I'm not, I'm not the parent of, the, of my family, right, or whatever, okay? Um, I'm not the dad or the mom in that situation. I'm not the financial provider of the family, but I definitely had some questions as a middle schooler. I did. I mean, what in the world are we going to drive, okay? Why, why would we give this away, I mean, we're not really in the kind of family that has excess, and so we're really more the family that, that needs donations, okay? So why are we doing this? I didn't really understand, but I tell you what, that was, honestly, it was a jaw-dropping experience for me. I've never forgotten that act of service. That's why I'm telling it to you today. I don't know how many years later, but my parents, what they did, I mean, it just really magnified their character, but more so, honestly, magnified Christ in them to me. But it also redefined how I should view my possessions. So there's things that happen in our lives that are experientially so intense and amazing. They stick with you. They kind of redefine some things for you. And what this jaw-dropping act of Jesus does is it, it magnifies Jesus. It doesn't magnify the people whose feet are being washed. It magnifies the servant. It puts him on display. It doesn't elevate the served. It elevates the server. And it proves the utterly unique message of Christianity. Because, guys, if our leader serves, he doesn't need to be served. That's why. Because he has all, he ha all things. They're all in his hands. Verse 3 tells you that. He has no needs like we do. He isn't wanting. But that doesn't position Jesus at some distance from us where he stands back and says, you know what, I'm good. I have no needs. Sorry to be you. That would be horrible to be you. That's not what Jesus does. His personhood is on full display. His greatness and uniqueness is on full display. He takes the lowest position here, and it magnifies himself, and it should honestly rock our world this morning. It should stick with us, and it should redefine some things for us. But something is happening here that is more than just a mere example of kneeling love to his disciples. There is something deeper happening here, and we begin to see that this, what this is and this interaction that Jesus has with Peter in verse 6. So look with me in verse 6. So Jesus, he comes to Simon Peter, and Simon says to him, Lord, this is, I'll read it the way the, the Greek emphasizes it, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So Jesus wants to come and wash Peter's feet. And Peter's response, it's honestly really combative to Jesus. He can't receive this act from Jesus. I mean, again, the sentence is, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
It's combative. It's like a challenge, if you will, to Jesus. And then he says to Jesus in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. Literally, that sentence reads, you shall not forever wash my feet. Peter cannot accept this humble, slave-like task from Jesus. He just can't receive it. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but maybe you do. Maybe you're like Peter. Maybe you're like me, and you struggle oftentimes with receiving sacrificial love and help from other people. I'm sure, like many of you, as I've talked to many of you, uh, my family just went through the absolute ringer of sickness, okay? And uh, we went to Denver, and the whole time we were in Denver for a week, we were just playing hospital, basically. And we came home, and um, uh, I'm not trying to blow smoke up their skirt or something, but Jacob and Andrea Fife House, um, uh, when we got back, they, they said, hey, we'll bring you dinner, and I'm so grateful they brought us dinner, but I would be lying to you if I, if I were to say that's not hard for me to receive that, just being real with you. When someone says, hey, can I help you? Can I make a meal for you? Can I help you in any way? That's kind of hard for me. It feels difficult if you're anything like me to often receive love and care from others. I feel like I'm, I'm putting others out, honestly, or that I'm being a burden to other people. But really, as I've thought about it a little bit this week, when I think about it, my difficulty in receiving help and gifts and handouts is that it's kind of a shot to my pride. I want to feel needed. I want to feel helpful. I don't want to feel like I'm in need of help. And I think Peter's in a very similar spot because he's being asked to take this posture of this lower position to humble himself. And Jesus' response to him is actually really intense because Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. You're not mine. You can't be mine, Peter. I need to wash you. And so this causes Peter to think that he now knows what Jesus is talking about. And so he basically goes, oh, Jesus, okay, then don't wash my feet. Give me a shower. Okay? And he thinks he's being brilliant, but he's really being an idiot, right? He doesn't really understand at all what Jesus is saying to him still because Jesus is talking about something much much deeper here. He says in verse 7, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. What does Jesus mean? What he's meaning to tell Peter is that this example of foot washing is actually pointing to the cross. This this example of, of taking the lowest position and washing their feet, doing the job nobody wanted to do, It's pointing to the humiliation that he's in an experience on the cross. It's pointing to the very thing that he came to this earth to do, to the greatest act of love the world would ever see and know. It's pointing to Jesus' purpose, pointing to his passion, to his self-giving, self-emptying, sacrificial death on the cross for you. See, if Jesus' washing of their feet was mind-blowing, if they couldn't receive this because it was so earth-shattering and worldview-altering, then how in the world could they handle the reality that Jesus was coming the very next day to an even greater place of humiliation, the cross? To put it this way, if if this kneeling love of Jesus is too much for you to handle, if you can't humble yourself and receive the washing, then how in the world can you take in his dying love for you? But we must. Because, this is always true, guys, always true. Unless Jesus has taken away your sin, unless he has washed you, you can have no part with him. No part with him. Now, I recognize how difficult a statement 
like this from Jesus is for us today. This is offensive to many of us, honestly, because we live in a day and a time in a society, right, that believes that people are generally good. We're all pretty good. We're not generally bad. I were to put it in the words, in the terms here of Jesus, we believe that people are generally clean, not generally dirty. You see, Jesus is saying, unless I wash you, he's saying this to you this morning, unless I wash you, you have no place with me. You can't have Jesus if you can't let him wash you. And you will never be willing to let him wash you unless you see how dirty you are and how desperately you need to be cleaned and that the only way you will be washed of your sin is if you humble yourself and let Jesus wash you. If you receive his sacrifice for you, if you would receive his love for you and his forgiveness for you, I realize this is a very hard pill to swallow. It's a shot to our pride because it shows us that we are the ones in need. We have to see that. I'll put it to you this way. I mean, what goes through your mind? Let me just ask you. What goes through your mind if you're hanging out with somebody, okay, and someone looks at you and they, you know, it's been a little bit of time and they just pull something out of their pocket and it's a mint or a gum, piece of gum and they go, hey, do you want a piece of gum? Do you want a mint? Right, what do you think of when that happens to you? Every time, this is what I think, I go, oh, no, does my breath stink? Right? Immediately, that's my knee-jerk reaction. Like, oh, they're saying that because my breath smells, okay? Right? It, it seems like this awkward exchange all of a sudden, right? Like, just, just imagine, though, if they even said to you, if you're hanging out with this person, guy or girl, I don't care who it is, okay? They said, hey, man, hey, girl, whatever, your breath, ugh, man, I literally cannot carry on a conversation with you any longer unless you fix that, okay? You can have no part with me right? No part with me at all unless you take this mint, right? We'd, I'm just going to have to leave. It's so bad. It's so gross, okay? Let's just say those words flowed out of their mouth into your ears, okay? Wonderful friend, right? Okay? That is offensive, correct? That is offensive, right? So you, in that moment, you have to admit your breath reeks and accept the mint or that friend, right, is not going to hang out with you any longer, correct? Right? See, here's the thing. If you want, if what you want most, if who you want most, say this way, if who you want most is offering you the mint, or if who you want most is offering you the washing, and if you aren't washed and you don't take the mint, and because of that you can have no part with them, then knowing that, that offering to you, it's actually a love offering. No matter how offended you might feel, it's actually a, a blessing. It's a great blessing to you. It's a, it's a loving offering because if you can't humble yourself, guys, and let Jesus come and wash you this morning, then you can't have Jesus. You can't be tied to him. So him pointing out your need to be washed and his willingness to come and wash you with such humility is the most loving thing no matter how offended you might feel. You have to see that. So there's a deeper meaning here in this example of Jesus. This is the deeper meaning that this act of Jesus, this washing, it extends and it points beyond the mere example of taking the lowest position in society. And it extends to the fact that he's going to do a job that nobody wants to do. 
He doesn't just take a position of feet washing, doing something that nobody wants to do. He's pointing in this act to a job that nobody actually could do. No one was pure and perfect enough to offer up their lives to God as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of people. Nobody wanted to wash feet, and Jesus did it. But more than that, deeper still, nobody could die satisfactory for sins, and Jesus was going to do just that. That's what this is pointing to. And so, guys, this is thrown into our faces this morning. Do you see your need to be washed by Jesus? Let me ask you, do you want to be tied to him eternally? You must humble yourself and see your need, and it might feel offensive, but it is an offer of love. And so, if if you do, if you see this deeper meaning and you humble yourself, then how does that change the way you will live, that you will walk out these doors this week and scatter across the city, across your campus, into your workplace and neighborhood? How does this literally change things? Well, the change his example brings, I think, is twofold. It's twofold, and we're going to see this in verse 12 through 17. Okay, it says in verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed, happy are you if you do them. Blessed, happy are you if you do them. Guys, this is beautiful. This is so beautiful. Jesus gives the example And he turns around and he tells you to live into his example. It's so beautiful, you guys, because you could take this to the bank, okay? Jesus never asks you to do anything that he hasn't already done or isn't already doing. He's not one of those people who will tell you to do stuff and he would never be willing to do it. He always asks you to do stuff that he's already done and is already doing. This is so beautiful, He plainly states, I have done this for you, now treat each other this way. He's not literally referring to washing each other's feet. He's not saying, hey, just wash each other's feet all the time, okay? I mean, it could include that, I guess, but that's that's, that's not all the realm of possibility. But what he's talking about is, is bigger. It's just the act of service, of going low, taking the lowest position amongst each other and serving each other. Now, I think it's, it's very true when you look out on our society today that we, we could, you could say we idolize the virtue of service in our day. It's really valued, okay? It's, it's admirable. It's nice. When we think of serving people, it kind of gives us a little bit of the warm fuzzies, right? It's like, oh, it's nice. What a nice thing, okay? I mean, we do. We live in an activist age and amazing things. Honestly, amazing things are being done and accomplished that are really good things throughout the world through people's acts of service, and it is right, it is honestly right that we look out on the world and we look at very hurting and broken people and we seek to advocate and help them, to get involved, like with organizations like Remember New or Clean Water Initiatives or World Vision or Compassion International, or you name it. It's all so important and so good. But there's two critical things here in this passage that should radically shape us into totally different people and they might not give you the warm fuzzies just being honest with you. It will make you stand out, though, as a radically different person. 
There's two things that move us away from some of this maybe idolatry, you could say, that we have. And this passage reshapes these two things, who you're willing to serve and why you serve. So just quickly, who? Who we're willing to serve is reshaped here by Jesus because what does it say in verse 12? It's really simple, really short. When he had washed their feet. When he had washed their feet. Whose feet? All of them. All of them. Here we see Jesus wash the feet of those people who would betray him and turn their backs on him. Every single one of these disciples are going to scatter. Some are not even going to claim to even know him. This is a huge challenge when you think about it because there are people that we want to serve in life because we like them. And that's great that we serve them because we like them, but we serve them because we like them. Or we might serve people because we want them to like us back. But see, we often serve in order to gain something in return, whether it's a view that we want people to have of us or or whatever it is. We serve in order to gain something in return, but how in the world do we serve when there seems to be no added benefit or worse yet, how do we serve those that we don't like? Or how do we serve people who we disagree with? Or how do we even serve people who have wounded us or are going to wound us again? Let me ask you, are we exempt from loving those people and serving them? It's actually a question I want you to discuss this week in your community groups, but I think you could see clearly in this passage, this passage indicates that no, not at all. There's, There's no exemption here. You have to consider whose feet Jesus washed and all these disciples, they're going to abandon Jesus in just a mere amount of hours and some are going to deny him, they're going to betray him and yet he washes all of their feet. So right now I recognize that there are some of you who you're sitting here, I know, and you can think of of, of people that you would say to me, Josh, you have no idea what that person has done to me. You have no idea how they've treated me, how they've betrayed me or, or abandon me. I I could never serve them. They honestly should be serving me. They should be seeking out my forgiveness and restitution from me, right? Let me just, I'll say with you honestly, I really do know what you're feeling. I really do. I'm human. But when we read a passage like this, we are confronted with the reality that if Jesus, guys, if Jesus saved a seat for Judas at the table, knowing what Judas was going to do to him, then surely by the grace of God, we can come to the table with people fellow Christians even, who we disagree with, who we don't like, who have hurt us. If Jesus washed the feet of of Judas at the table, if he washes his feet, doesn't just invite him to the table, he washes his feet, then surely by the grace of God we can serve those who don't deserve our humble love and service. But let me say something to you that I think is more liberating. Let me say that better yet, if you take this posture that Jesus embodies for us, it will truly work wonders in your life. It will truly set you free, especially from that person that you feel is impossible to serve. It really, really will. It's so worth it because it's truly the path of life that God has set out for you. There's a helpful quote from Dallas Willard on this passage. Be on the screen. Dallas Willard says, Jesus is telling us who the great person is. He or she is the one who is servant of all. Being a servant shifts one's relationship to everyone. What what do you think it would do to sexual temptation 
if you thought of yourself as a servant? What do you think it would do to covetousness? What do you think it would do to the feeling of resentment because you didn't get what you thought you deserved? I'll tell you, it'll lift the burden. Do you see what he's saying? It's so true. Not only are we called to humbly serve each other without exception, but please, in a way, see how medicinal serving is to your own soul. It's, it's liberating, it's freeing, it sets you free from the, the wounds and the hurt even that you might experience from other people. I mean, hear me so clearly, it is not easy. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. We're, we are confronted with the messiness and the grittiness of the kind of service that Jesus is calling us into this morning. It's not easy, super hard, because we are called to love and humbly serve each other, even those amongst us that have hurt us, betrayed us, people that we can't possibly seem to wrap our minds around how in the world we could ever even serve them. But that's, that's also why we need this second truth that Jesus reshapes here. It's this why, the why. Why do we serve? Jesus completely reshapes this question for you. Why do we serve? Why should we serve? Do you see? In verses 14 through 16, why should we serve? We're commanded by Jesus to serve because we have been served. We serve because we have been served. Do you see that? I mean, Jesus alludes to himself like a master and we're like a servant, or he's like a king and we're a messenger. And he says, logically, guys, if, if, if a master does something or a king does something, that would mean that you as the servant or the messenger, you're not above this calling, right? If Jesus has done this, instead of saying that's not for me, we have to submit ourselves to it because he's given us a powerful example. And so most of us might seek out service in our lives, if most of us, if we were to go, why do we serve? We would answer that very differently than what Jesus is laying out for us here. The why. We might serve so that we would gain love from another person. That's why you might serve somebody. Or you might serve someone just to get respect from them. Or you might serve so that you would actually be served, you know, kind of like karma stuff, you know, what goes around comes around sort of thing, Right? You might even seek to serve Jesus because you want him to love you more or, or do stuff for you and you think somehow your act of service is going to accomplish that. But see here, Jesus commissions us to serve one another and by way serve him then not so that we would be loved by each other or so that we would be even loved by God, but they, we are to serve each other because we have been loved by God. Because we have been served by Jesus. That's a, so, it's a completely different motivation for serving others. Because you have been served, not in order to be served, but in order to be, you, you serve now because you've been served. You love because you have been loved. Not in order to gain something back, not in order to gain love in return. We aren't told to serve in order to gain something. We serve, Jesus says in this passage, because we've already gained everything. This is why knowing the why will empower you to serve whomever, no matter how hurt you've been by somebody else. You've got to know this why. Because we don't serve in order to gain something from somebody else. And so if you're serving someone who's hurt you, you don't serve them trying to elicit some sort of response from them or change from them per se or for, to get them to do something in return to you. You can just serve them freely and fully because you realize how Jesus served you. Because we look to Jesus and, and 
And he may not have literally washed your feet this morning, but we know that he's done far more than that for us on the cross. That he's gone to that cross for you. He's endured that cross for you, the ultimate humiliation. He's done that. He's washed you. While you were still sinning, while you were in the act, he acted before you ever asked. Jesus did that for you. And so when we stare at Jesus and in this grace this morning, that's what empowers us to love and serve others who aren't asking for it and who don't even deserve it. We can do that because we know that, that we didn't deserve Jesus' love. We didn't deserve his service towards us. We can act towards others without them because we know deep inside that this is how Jesus has treated us. And it changes everything. That'll change your roommate situation this week. That'll change your marriage this week. If you see how loved and served you are by Christ, that'll allow you to serve others so humbly, not looking to get something back because you already have everything in Christ. Do you see this morning? I mean, do you see this jaw-dropping example of Jesus for you? I mean, can you hear this commission from him? Guys, the motivation for this command to serve is so different than any motivation found in this world. This makes Christianity utterly unique and compelling. Because we see in this passage that our leader, our God, served. He didn't come to be served. And so, we serve. Not because we're trying to gain something, but because we've already gained everything in Christ. John Flavel once said, they that know Jesus will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. They that know Jesus will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. And that is, that is my prayer for us, that we would truly know Jesus, that we would truly know ourselves, and as a result, Guys, we would take the lowest positions, be the most humble people, the most humble servants in our community. Father, I need